0: you have the chance to win a spring super sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps.
1: From LAist Studios, this is Off Ramp. I'm John Raby. When I was a kid growing up in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan in the 1970s, we still had a lot of World War I vets. In fact, our town got together, raised money, and sent them to Paris to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the armistice. One of them even taught me how to play a song on the harmonica. So they were a presence in my life. And then one by one, they started dying off. And uh, I got out here to California, and I was searching surviving World War I vets one day in 2006, and up popped the name of George Henry Johnson, who was California's last World War I vet. And since he was far more than a hundred years, I quickly got in touch with Tamara Keith, who was then KPCC's Sacramento Bureau Chief. She's now, of course, a, a star at NPR. But I said, Tamara, please go talk with this guy. And she did.
0: My name is George Henry Johnson. <clears throat>
2: when were you born?
0: I was born on May the 1st, 1894.
2: So you're 112 now? I'm
0: 112 years old today, yes. That's what I am. It's not my fault.
2: <laughs> George Johnson lives in his three-story house in Richmond, overlooking the San Francisco Bay. He spends most of his time now bundled up, resting in a worn leather and tweed chair in a small study. He's kept his birthday candles on a little table in his dining room, they're the oversized numbers that usually go on a toddler's cake. One, one, two.
0: I don't, I don't realize I'm 112. A lot of people say, you don't talk like most people 112. hundred 100 years old can't hardly talk. I say, well, I've, I've had a lot of them talk to me, and they, and, they, and they can't hardly talk. I know what you're talking about.
2: Johnson is animated. He talks with his hands. He's totally blind and mostly deaf. Nurses look after him at all hours. This is a fairly new development, just okay. since the
0: spring. What time will you be tomorrow, about breakfast? Uh,
3: around that time, maybe, or 11 o'clock.
0: 11 o'clock? Yes. Okay, baby. Okay. Is, I tell you,
3: Natalia? Natalia.
0: Museum Natalia? Yeah, Natalia. Okay. Okay? Okay. For
2: most of us, the Civil War seems like ancient history. It's just one generation removed from George Johnson.
0: My father was there. My father was standing alongside... Of, of the man uh, giving the Gettysburg Gettysburg address. Abraham Lincoln, I think, what was his name? What was his name? Abraham Lincoln or something. Anyway.
2: Johnson talks fondly of his childhood in Philadelphia. His family had the only telephone on the block, and when it rang, kids would run around the neighborhood shouting, Johnson, your phone's ringing. His family lit its home with kerosene lamps, and spotting a car on the street was special.
0: If we saw a Ford automobile parked outside of a house, I'd stay there, two or three of us, for about an hour, waiting for the people to come out to get into that car so he could crank it for them. They didn't have a, a automatic starters on cars in those days. That is when they first come out, like they have now, of course. you had to know what you were doing, otherwise you'd break, you could break your arm if you cranked that thing and it backfired on you.
2: Johnson hasn't heard of the Internet or iPods. He confuses the cordless phone in his bedroom with a cell phone and he marvels at the other changes that have occurred in his lifetime.
0: We seem to have all we needed and all we wanted. But now, I look upon that and I wonder to myself, how in the God's world we existed in those days without the things that they got now?
2: When Johnson was in his 20s, his country called him to serve in World War I. He's still bitter that Uncle Sam wanted him.
0: I'm telling you, the notice was under the door for me to report. They wasn't answering a question that I had asked them. They had, was demanding. That was, that was a demand. That was a
2: draft. Johnson reported for basic training in a time before camouflage, Kevlar, or Gore-Tex. But before he saw combat, the war ended. After the war, he and his wife Ida moved west.
0: They were inviting people to come live to California and giving them land. Now that I think, how, how expensive land is right now that was given to them.
2: Johnson refuses to say how much he paid for his land, but it was a lot cheaper to settle in the Bay Area then. He's proud of his house he built there. Three stories, hardwood floors, wood paneling on the walls,
0: stucco exterior. Whenever I had a minute, I was building a house, nailing out, saw it out, all by hand. Not a single mechanical saw that I have on this place.
2: He says he'd do it again. Johnson made a career of operating a steam heater at the Navy Hospital in Oakland. He retired when he was seventy. For more than forty years he's received a federal pension check every month. Johnson says he's had a good life.
0: I've lived up to now, and I have never suffered for a want. I was always in a position to supply the commodity that I needed. Whatever I had to do, I did it myself.
2: Johnson pins his success and longevity to one more thing. He's never been drunk. He swears up and down that the most liquor he's ever swallowed was a mouthful on a full stomach. Tamara Keith, 89.3, KPCC.
1: Tamara Keith, now NPR's Tamara Keith, filed that story in 2006. George Henry Johnson, California's last World War I vet, died August thirtieth, two 2006, at the age of 112. Coming up on this Veterans Day edition of Off-Ramp, they gave up Kevin Ferguson's grandfather for dead, and it's understandable because he was on the USS Indianapolis. This is Off-Ramp from L.A.S. Studios.
3: The L.A.S. Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps.
1: This is off from Elias Studios. This is the Veterans Day edition. We have two more stories to go. For most historians, there are few stories more compelling than that of the USS Indianapolis, a heavy cruiser that had seen battle for nearly all of World War II. Its final voyage was one of the most integral yet disastrous missions in the history of the U.S. Navy. And for former off-ramp producer Kevin Ferguson, it's a story that hit very close to home. It hits close because
4: my grandfather, Albert Ferguson, was the chief engineer on the Indianapolis, the last big U.S. ship sunk in World War II.
3: My name is Georgiana Ferguson, and I am Kevin's grandmother.
4: Can you tell me about how you and uh, and Grandpa met?
3: Actually, we were from the same town. He used to work for my father in the print shop. He proposed to me when he was on shore duty one uh, weekend. Then he went away to war again. When he was gone, a Japanese suicide plane crashed into his engine room and killed seven of his men. He happened to be out of the engine room at the time getting a drink of water, and so they limped back to Vallejo for repairs, and that's when we were married, on May the 7th, 1945. Oh, we did have an accompanist that played the piano and played our song, which is Irving Berlin's Always. Then he had to go to sea again. They were on a super secret mission. The people on the ship had no idea. They were just uh, going to Honolulu and setting a speed record. They did know that there was a heavy guard around one item on the ship, but they had no idea what it was. As it turned out, it was the components for the atom bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, the first one.
4: After the Indianapolis dropped off the parts, she headed home. But on July 30th, a Japanese submarine fired two torpedoes at the ship, and within 12 minutes, it sank. The news didn't reach home until August 14th, the day the Japanese surrendered. This CBS announcer gets the name of the ship wrong, but the bad news still cast a pall on the celebrations back home.
0: The Second World War is over. The Japanese have surrendered unconditionally. Aggressive action by our armed forces has already been ordered stopped, and the same order has been issued to the Japanese. There's a somber note to close this broadcast. The Navy is announcing the loss of the heavy cruiser Annapolis recently in the Philippine Sea from enemy action with 100% casualties to her personnel, totaling 1,196 officers and men. The Navy gave no details of her final action.
3: So I thought I was a widow. Well, of course I cried (coughs) because I felt that I had lost my husband.
4: Did you start making plans?
3: No, I I had no plans. I mean, you know, it was so quick and so unexpected that you don't have time to make plans.
4: Not even funeral plans?
3: No. I wouldn't have had a body.
4: Did you feel like you could talk to people about this?
3: Well, I did talk to my parents about it. You know, I mean, there was no hope. They had said that they were all gone. But we were glad the war was over. It's hard because I didn't want to celebrate his pathing. But everybody went downtown anyway. We all went downtown on the main street in Sacramento. Everybody was singing and shouting, and the sailors were grabbing people and kissing them. And
4: were you waving a flag there, or were you just kind of... What, well, what were you doing?
3: No, I went down. I went down with my sister, and we went down just to join the throngs and to see what people were doing.
4: Did you feel like doing
3: that? I didn't feel like sitting home by myself.
4: Because of poor organization in the Navy and other factors, including a drunken radio operator, the Indianapolis was never reported missing. Those who survived the torpedoes faced four days of sharks, dehydration, and salt poisoning until by chance an American plane spotted them.
3: About two weeks later, I received a telegram from the Navy Department saying he was missing in action. Well, I already knew that, so I still thought I was a widow. And then about three weeks after that, I received a letter from a doctor in Guam, and he said that my husband was in the hospital there, and they didn't know if they'd be able to save his leg or not. I was conflicted because I thought if he comes home with only one leg... How will I receive him? You know that you didn't marry somebody for a leg, but you don't know if you're going to recoil or if you're going to be able to take it or or what. I didn't want to make him feel bad if he came back with one leg. When he came back, he came in on a bus. Well, he got off and he was about the third person off the bus, and he walked toward me, and he was six foot. One and he weighed 97 pounds. He was just skin and bone, but he was walking, and it was just so good to see him walking. He had lost his wedding ring because his hands had shriveled in the water and it had fallen off, but he was home, and we managed to build a life from that time on.
0: I'll be loving you Always, with a love that's true.
4: But the story of the Indianapolis doesn't end there. Not long after the sinking, Charles McVeigh, the ship's captain, was court martialed for endangering his crew. The trial caught national attention, especially when the captain of the enemy submarine testified on McVeigh's behalf. My grandpa, Albert Ferguson, also spoke up for his captain, but the conviction stuck and the Navy demoted McVeigh. He shot himself several years later. It wasn't until 2001, after years of appeals and the unsealing of new evidence, that the Navy exonerated the captain, he got an official pardon from Congress, and the ship's crew received a memorial in downtown Indianapolis. Of the 1,196 men aboard the USS Indianapolis, 900 or so made it out of the sinking ship, and only 316 survived the ordeal in the water. For Off-Ramp, I'm Kevin Ferguson.
0: Not for just an hour Not for just a day Not for just a year But
1: always Kevin filed that story back in May of 2011 and in August of that year, his grandma passed away at the age of 87. And by the way, there is now just one living survivor of the USS Indianapolis. His name is Harold Bray and he just turned 95. Coming up as we continue this Veterans Day edition of Off Ramp, I learn just how insane it was that anybody survived in a B24. This is Off Ramp from Elias Studios. From LAS Studios, this is Off-Ramp, continuing the Veterans Day edition of our podcast. I had one of the best days in my life in May of 2015. That is when I got to fly on a B-24 bomber from Santa Barbara down to Los Angeles. This is Off-Ramp. I'm John Raby. On May 27, 1943, Louis Zamperini, the hero of the movie Unbroken, was flying in a B-24 bomber on a mission over the Pacific. The plane had mechanical difficulties and went down about a 1,000 miles south of Oahu. Zamperini was adrift for almost 50 days before he made it to land, where he was captured by the Japanese and held and tortured until the end of the war. About 19,000 B-24s were built, but there is only one still flying, and that one's owned by the Collings Foundation. And today, we're not only going to fly one from here at Santa Barbara Airport to Torrance, but we're flying with Louis Zamperini's son, Luke. Luke Zamperini, welcome to Off Ramp.
5: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: What's it like connecting with this plane that your your father flew in during the war? That he went down in during the war.
5: Well, it's uh, pretty amazing. I'd only seen one once before, and I took my dad for a a visit, and he crawled inside the plane and got in the in the net, in the uh, the bombardier's seat, and then I followed him through the plane as he started reliving. The, the battle of, uh, over Nauru, which was, a, was the opening scene of the film. Huh. And so by the time I got to the back of the airplane, he was exhausted just from reliving that battle. Wow. And he said to me, he said, well, I, I tell you, in my memory, the plane was larger. So when I got to ride in it three years ago, it was really tremendous because you get, get in there and it starts up, and as it starts to taxi, you get the idea that you're kind of in this flying jalopy. Huh and you know, all the air coming through all the you know the wind the windows and uh, along the the you know the turrets they don't have any you know like uh, they don't have any rubber that seals them from the outside so you just have this wind blowing through the through the plane and I suddenly had realized just what kind of men that that generation was to get in something like this and fly 8 or 10 hours over the ocean yeah. and Go. fight a war yeah fight a war and it's just uh, you know you get the sensation that there's there's, really not, there's nothing between you and a bullet uh, except a little tiny little bit of aluminum.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to flying in it today with you. Thanks for coming on off-ramp.
5: Oh, it's going to be fun. It's a pleasure to be on off-ramp.
1: Jim pappy Gouldsby is our pilot down to uh, Torrance. Uh, thanks for coming on off-ramp. How is, this, how is this ride going to be different from somebody like me who's only ridden on modern
5: planes? Well, first of all, there ain't no sturdus. <laughs> <laughs> no coffee, tea or donuts, and uh, uh, it's gonna be noisy, it's gonna be windy and it'll probably be a little bit cool.
1: How do you come by flying these? How'd this happen? Uh,
5: I flew with the airlines for like 34 years I had before that I had flown old DC-3's and stuff with a small airline in the Bahamas. So when I retired I was looking for something to do to keep me busy and this came along and I got an offer and uh, I've been doing it now, this is my 16th year. I assume you've
1: taken guys up in this B-24 who actually flew on B-24s during
5: the war? Oh yeah, and they have interesting stories. and not one of them that wouldn't make a movie.
1: How do they react to flying in it again?
5: Uh, some of them get tearful, some of them are happy that they don't have to do it again. <laughs> some of them are thankful that they got to fly it once more.
1: Thanks very much, and uh, uh, thank you for flying us today.
5: You're welcome, I uh, enjoy it.
1: last B-24 still flying. Getting a beautiful view of Santa Barbara now. That bell that maybe you just heard means that we can get up and walk around the cabin if we'd like. It's going to be a while before I have the guts to get up and walk around the cabin and look out the windows because we're just in a big flying crate. Thin wall of aluminum over the ribs of the fuselage. Introduce yourself for our audience. Good afternoon, this is Tim Goodrich, council member from the City of Torrance. And you serve, right? Yes, sir. I was in the Air Force, did four years active duty and a few deployments over to the Middle East. Well, how does it compare, modern military plane versus what they were flying for World War II? You know, it gives you a new respect for what our fathers and grandfathers had to do in their military service working on these planes. I I do have familial ties with this B-24. Not only did I have a great uncle that was an instructor on the Norton bomb site, which is in this plane, my grandfather was a radio mechanic and I served in the Air Force. Uh, I could have chosen any job I wanted, and I chose the equivalent of radio mechanic, not knowing at the time that my grandfather had also done that job on this aircraft. There are about a dozen people on the plane with me. Every one of them is wearing the hugest smile you can imagine. Everybody is like a little kid. It's just so thrilling and exciting. It's, it's uh, really very hard to describe. We've touched down now at Zamperini Field in Torrance. Let's go check in with Luke Zamperini, see what he thought of the flight.
5: What a gas it was, man. I'll tell you, that was so much fun. I could have stayed another couple hours in that thing.
1: Anyway. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for giving us an excuse for the ride.
5: <laughs> You're, welcome. You're welcome.
1: For lots of photos and videos of our flight from Santa Barbara to the Western Museum of Flight in Torrance, go to kpcc.org slash A piece originally aired in May of 2015. I'm John Raby for LAS Studios. I'll catch you next time on The Off-Ramp.
3: This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.